Colossians chapter four. Let's start this again. The topic we're gonna find there is that Paul solicits prayer from the Colossians for the many brothers helping him spread the gospel. The title of our message, come on people now, pray for your brother. Everybody get together and love one another right now. Let's pray. I'd sing it, but you won't sing with me when I do those things, and then I feel embarrassed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning thus far. Always a joy to worship together with other Christians. Our voice is a choir of praise rising before your throne as incense. Now we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that we would see Jesus in these verses. We pray in his name and those who agreed said, amen. Many of you have participated in team building activities. An employer takes employees out of the workplace, often on a retreat, to help them break down personal barriers and eliminate distractions and have some fun and kind of gel together as a group. I'm most familiar with a trust-building activity called the Trust Fall. One member of the team is selected, stands on a raised platform from which they fall backwards, relying on the support of their team to catch them. Before you volunteer for that, however, you need to Google trust fall fails. (laughs) In some cases, the folks just don't catch you. They want to. It's not like they are trying to let you fall. It's just apparently it is more complicated to try and catch somebody falling backward than you might think. In other cases, my favorites, the faller unexpectedly falls forward instead of backward (laughs) where no one is. Those are the kind of people that you uh, cut from the team, I think, as far as team building. You've been cut. Now, I got to thinking about team building because here at the end of this letter, uh, the Apostle Paul introduces a sort of team. He identifies no less than 10 individuals involved with him in spreading the gospel and planting churches. Do you think they participated in weekend retreats complete with uh, trust falls? I'm going to say no. However, we do get insight into one activity that was essential for them. Paul encourages the Colossians to continue earnestly in prayer for themselves in verse 2 and to pray also for us in verse 3. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, continue in prayer for yourselves at home. And number two, commit to praying for your servants at large. First of all, continue in prayer for yourselves, uh, verses 2, and then we'll look at verses 5 and 6. They kind of go together. Now, most of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon. He was pastor of the Congregation of the New Park Street Chapel, later called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, in London for over 38 years. Spurgeon frequently preached to audiences numbering more than 10,000. Thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ under his ministry. Spurgeon never took credit for the success of his ministry. Instead, he always pointed to the hundreds of people who came before services and prayed. He said any success he had came from God in answer to their prayers. Spurgeon was fond of calling these prayer gatherings the church's boiler room. Steam was the power source of the day. Boiler rooms were the powerhouses. Spurgeon saw the corporate praying of his people as the true source of spiritual power. When Paul encouraged the Colossians to continue in prayer, I think he meant something more than each individual believer's personal prayer life. He was addressing the entire church, the gathering of believers, and telling them they should continue praying 
together. Now, we always tend, or at least I do, always tend to think more of individual prayers. Whenever there's a teaching or a, a verse on prayer, I think about my own prayer life, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think, uh, you know, we, we have such a, an individualistic, independent spirit that we forget that we're, we're meant to come together and pray together as well. And we're going to see some reasons throughout these verses to believe that Paul had corporate prayer in mind. So let's begin with verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Continue earnestly is one word. It can mean to devote yourselves. And it's also, according to Strong's Concordance, a plural word. And so he's telling the church in its gatherings to devote time to prayer. Vigilant has lots of possible meanings. One of them is to be mindful that you can slack off if you're not careful. And so whether it's our own personal prayer life or the church's prayer life, it's easy to slack off. I don't need to make you feel bad. All of us would probably say yes to the statement, do you ever slack off in prayer and then try and you know, recommit yourself to it. Uh, I think uh, you know, if, I t- if I said you know, that you don't pray enough, you'd say, yeah, I agree. Uh, and neither do you, Pastor Gene. <laughs> and so you know, it's just part of being a Christian that sometimes we need that exhortation. With thanksgiving can certainly mean we should be thankful in all things, knowing all things work together for the good. But might it not also mean we should be thankful that we can, in fact, approach God anytime in prayer, knowing that he hears us? We ought to take full advantage of it, especially when gathered together. And so sometimes I think we, we just forget what a tremendous privilege it is to be in the presence of God. We just studied Exodus for however many weeks not too long ago before Colossians. And it's all about the tabernacle and really, in a way, um, from our point of view, the barriers to getting closer to God. Uh, it was wonderful if you were in the Old Testament tribes of Israel because that, they had a program for coming into the presence of God. He lived there in the tabernacle. But we now, we're in the presence of God all the time. We don't have to go through any ritual. No one brought a lamb this morning for ritual sacrifice, I hope. Uh, or any other kind of animal. And, and so it's a, a super privilege that we need to be really, really thankful for. Verse five, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Paul was comparing those inside the church, those in Christ, with non-believers outside the church. So again, it seems he had the corporate church in mind more than just individual believers. Having said that, We know that each of us is the church in the sense that we are its members. We are each a living stone in the building that is being built on the earth. Individually concerning those who are outside, you're to walk in wisdom. Now, wisdom is the practical application of the truth in God's word, the Bible. And so I walk in wisdom when I apply Christian principles out in the real world. And that sounds wonderful until you remember that God said his wisdom is foolishness to the world. And so there's going to be times that when I walk in God's wisdom, according to God's will and his ways, the world will consider me foolish, whether it's that I approach something with meekness or humility or forgiveness or gentleness or uh, some fruit of the spirit. uh, People are going to think that that's ridiculous. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. We need to climb the ladder of success. You'll never promote if you don't do this, that, or the other thing. And so uh, walking in wisdom sounds great until you actually have to do it. But God says people take note of it. 
Uh, they may not immediately understand it, but they will take note of it and they'll be drawn to you. Concerning those who are outside, I am to be redeeming the time. This is an interesting word. It means to buy out. Have you ever bought out an item from the store, bought out every last one because you wanted it and, and you knew it wouldn't be there the next time? I'm doing that right now with Dave's Everything Bagels. I love those things. I don't know why I haven't found them before. Dave's Everything 21 Whole Grain Bagels. And uh, you've got to get to Save Mart when they deliver them because they just don't order enough of them. And so you, I just buy them all before the other guy that comes in there buys them all and I have to watch you know, for him and steal his bag as he's going to his car or something like that. So I don't know, it's just my current buyout. But you've all done that, I think. You've, you've just, hey, I'm gonna, or, or it's something you think, hey, this is never gonna be available again. If I don't buy this right now, I'm never gonna find one again. And so you buy it out. And so the idea here is Paul is saying you need to uh, buy out opportunities to affect people's lives for Jesus. Seeing every opportunity as something valuable that you just can't pass up. Verse six, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The wording suggests that you create a taste in the lives of the non-believers that you encounter. And you know, I think that's true, generally speaking. Uh, people, if they know you're a Christian, uh, it's curious to them if, if they're non-believers. Uh, they don't understand why you would dedicate time each week to go to church when you could be home resting or mowing the lawn or watching useless college bowl games. Uh, I have an exit if you, uh, yes. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I never, you know what it is? I never played football, obviously. And uh, I just, I can't get into football at all anymore and college football especially. So please don't judge me. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, maybe I'm confessing. Uh, but anyway, um, people will look at you and they'll, they'll be curious because they have some idea of what it means to be religious. And, and so they're watching you. They want to know, they have an idea of what you shouldn't be doing uh, from you know, media or television or personal experience. If they see you something they think you shouldn't be doing, it's like, well, I thought you, could, uh, I thought you were a Christian. And well, it's an opportunity to share with them uh, what it means to be a Christian, unless you are doing something you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and it's an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. But anyway, you get the idea. People are watching you and they're curious about what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. Um, let your speech always be seasoned with grace, uh, seasoned with salt. You may know how you ought to answer each one. Grace is God's undeserved and unmerited favor. It's the heart of the God and the heart of the gospel. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, you have a problem, but it's probably not what you think it is. It's not your spouse or your boss or your addiction. Your problem is sin. You're a sinner and you need saving. The good news is that Jesus came and took your place on the cross to offer you the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Salvation is God's free gift to those who will simply receive it. The Holy Spirit is here in this place to open your heart and open your blinded eyes and free your will so that you can receive Christ as your savior. Salt both preserves food from corruption and it makes it savory for consumption. It's a reminder to let nothing corrupt come out of my mouth, but only that which is wholesome and spiritually savory. And he says that you may know how to answer each one. First of all, this tells you that when you walk in wisdom, people will be curious, as we said, 
They're going to ask you questions at some point. But second, Paul doesn't say everyone, but each one. It reminds us that the people we encounter are unique individuals for whom Jesus died. That means you can't have a standard answer for each person. Obviously, if people are asking you what we would call apologetic questions about creation versus evolution or things like that, then there's a, you know, some standard answers that we give people. But I found that most people aren't uh, refusing to come to Christ because they haven't solved the creation-evolution dilemma. Every now and then somebody will say, you know, that, that's what it was. It was some intellectual pursuit. But most people aren't coming to Christ because they don't know that they're sinners, uh, and, and these are all smokescreen things that they bring up. And so we have to really listen to people and talk to them where they're at. And sometimes that requires you to ask them questions. So just because somebody asks you a question doesn't mean you have to immediately answer it. Jesus never did. People would come to him and ask him a question and he would ask them a question. And then it would stupefy them and they would walk off. And then he would tell his disciples later the answer. But I found asking people questions is, is a really thoughtful thing to do. It's a little bit off subject, but uh, the particular subject, but a lot of times people will call and they want to know something about the church. They just moved into town and they'll call and say, hi, I'm new to town. We're looking for a church. Uh, what can you tell me about Calvary Hanford? Well, it's, it's a blue and white building on Dowdy. You know? I mean, there's, I mean, seriously, I mean, what, there's so much. Where do I start? They have a great pastor. And so what I have to do in a kind way, I say, hey, let me ask you a few questions. And I, I ask things typically like, where do you go to church now? Or what's your background? Uh, this, that, and the other thing. And finally, I can pinpoint what they're really looking for. Because, and there is something that's, and, and that's really on their heart. They want to know if we speak in tongues or if we hate tongues. They want to know if we're uh, Reformed or Arminian, those kinds of things. And, and then I'm able to answer their question. And so a lot of times, you need to really talk to people and hear what they're saying and ask them questions before you can give them the answer that will minister to them. Now, if I'm right about Paul addressing the church as a whole, then it means part of our individual spiritual success to those outside in the real world is dependent upon our being a praying church. So he's saying, hey, be a praying church, devote yourself to prayer, and then have an effect on those that are outside. They go hand in hand. Is it biblical to think so highly of corporate prayer? Well, I think it is. For one reason, in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, the early church faced a problem with the distribution of gifts to widows. When it was brought to the attention of the apostles, they uttered the well-known decree. I'll read it to you. This is Acts 6, 3, and 4. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, we tend to interpret this as pastor's private prayer and study time. We think of the apostles as cloistered away, praying and studying for the greater part of the day and then coming out and giving a teaching. Many pastors follow this model, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but that is not what this verse is saying. The actual words themselves are about corporate ministry. The last part of Acts 6, 4 should be translated, we will give ourselves continually to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. Why emphasize the prayer? One commentator said this, that little word the that appears before prayer indicates this doesn't mean prayer in general. It highlights something specific and important. 
The syntax of the sentence creates the possibility that the ministry of prayer and the ministry of the word are twin ideas, meaning these were both areas of public ministry. And so what Peter was saying is, we can't leave off from leading the corporate prayer of the church or from teaching the corporate church the word of God. And so corporate prayer, which is simply believers together praying, was very important to these guys. Now, let me say whatever we do to promote corporate prayer, it's gonna have to be done with grace, not force. The idea isn't to force people to pray. If someone has to force me to pray, there's something fundamentally wrong with my walk with the Lord to start with. Uh, and so, you know, I need to be concerned about that. Secondly, it's not, you're not more spiritual or more mature because you might pray out loud in a group. I think we have a, an idea that that must be true. If I'm hesitant to pray in a group for whatever reason and you're not, then you must be more spiritual than me. That's just not true, uh, period. So we do want to encourage praying in public, but we want to do it in non-threatening ways. And so here's what we've come up with. If you're around, you know all of these ways. About once a month, we take a prayer offering like we did this morning. We solicit prayer. You don't have to write anything down. I would venture to say everybody should because there's always something in your life that needs prayer, but it's no big deal. You write it down if you want to, and then we'll pray for it in our corporate prayer meetings. Uh, we have a weekly prayer meeting, First Watch, on Saturday nights where we pray for those cards and whatever else is on the hearts of those who attend. We have a really good response to corporate prayer at our midweek service. Midweek is a lot more casual than Sunday morning. Uh, it's family-oriented in the sense that kids are in there for half of the service, and we always have at least one, most of the times two, sections where we open it up for corporate prayer, where whoever wants to pray is able to pray out loud, and then we agree together with them. And something's been happening the past few weeks that's really cute. At the first part of the meeting, because the kids are in with us, the little kids, the like four- and five-year-olds, are praying. Uh, and it's really sweet. I mean, and they're praying real prayers that I think God is really gonna answer. And so I take them aside and I tell them to pray for me to have a Maserati. But uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. I would want a Ferrari. Uh, but anyway, every Sunday at service's end, we do set aside time for prayer. Now, it's not corporate in the sense that we uh, have you praying out loud but you're praying for yourself or whatever. And we do have the guys up front so we can pray together. Uh, and it goes on for about 10 minutes. And that's kind of unusual, I, I think. I mean, I don't get to travel to too many churches and see what they're doing anymore. But normally the end of a service, the service ends with the, you know, the, the Bible study is over, one song to say goodbye, and then you're gone. So we have this reflection time, which encourages more corporate participation and uh, a waiting on the Lord. And so I consider it part of corporate prayer, which doesn't impinge on anybody. Nobody's forcing you to come forward and pray with the guys. No one's forcing you to do anything. Uh, other than probably stay so that you don't distract others. And so we're doing what we can to encourage corporate prayer. I'll leave it up to you to measure your participation uh, in these things and where God wants you and maybe if he wants you to do a little bit more in 2019. Now, secondly, in the remaining verses, we want to commit to praying for servants at large. So you're in jail for preaching the gospel. What do you ask believers to pray for? Verse three, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. 
Paul didn't ask them to pray that his prison door would be left open so he could escape or even that God would open his prison door through regular legal channels so he might be released. Paul was only interested in God opening spiritual doors of ministry while he was in prison. He apparently thought that he was in a place where he could never reach uh, unless he was in jail. There was other prisoners, perhaps, and guards and different individuals that he would never have access to. So he was kind of excited, for a while at least, about being under house arrest. He called it a door for the word to be preached while he remained captive. You might be in a place at home or at work or at school where you feel confined, almost as if it's a prison to you. And I've heard people say that. They go, my, my, it's like being in prison. First of all, you should talk to one of the correctional officers that works or, you know, the, here at the church. It's not prison. Your job is not like prison. Uh, your marriage is not like prison. Nothing that you're going through is like prison unless you're in prison. And so, you know, don't exaggerate. But on the other hand, your priority ought to be that a door would open for the word rather than your prison door being open. And so if somebody comes to you theoretically and says, I've got to get another job, I can't stand my job, uh, will you pray for me? You should pray that they would understand that it gives them an open door of ministry while they're there. Uh, it, uh, you can change jobs. Nobody said you could never change jobs. But you're there right now, and so pray for an open door while you're there to share Christ. Paul called his message the mystery of Christ. He was revealing the previously concealed truth that the church on the earth was Jesus Christ's spiritual body and that it was entered by faith alone through grace alone without ethnic distinctions and without the necessity of first converting to Judaism. And while that doesn't sound like much to us, it was huge at the time. You could be a Christian and not have to be a Jew first. In fact, everybody had equal access now to the Lord. Verse four, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. Paul was a brilliant guy, as you know. He was a Jew with impeccable heritage, but also enjoyed Roman citizenship. He was a scripture scholar, but also well-read in Greek wisdom and philosophy. He was called by Jesus personally to be an apostle. He performed miracles in the name of Jesus. He established churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote a large part of the New Testament. Yet here he is soliciting prayer for his ministry because he depended only on God and not on any of those credentials. He considered all of that garbage uh, except for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now dropping down to verse seven, Paul begins to identify a bunch of other guys the Colossians could pray for. Uh, verse seven, Tychicus, some people call it Tychicus. I just don't like that, so I call him Tychicus. So I'm not sure which is which. You can secretly uh, listen to Google right now and correct me later, but for our purposes, he's Tychicus. A beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord, he will tell you all the news about me. Now this guy's named five times in the New Testament. He was given the responsibility of delivering or co-delivering three of Paul's letters. This one, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Philemon. After Paul was released from prison, Tychicus went with him to Crete, probably replaced Titus as the pastor there. He's with Paul again during his second imprisonment, but is uh, gone to Ephesus just before the apostle is martyred. Three phrases describe him in this verse, and they ought to describe each of us. So later on, ask yourself if they do. Verse eight, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. What a great sentence. Know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. This is a definition of how to minister to others. First, you need to know their circumstances. 
and you don't know their circumstances until you really think about it and enter into what they're telling you. Uh, I do it. We all do it. We're so in a hurry to give people solid biblical advice that we sometimes don't take time to listen to what they're really going through. There's nothing wrong even with giving somebody a Bible verse unless it's what we call a Bible bullet. Uh, you know, you can give somebody the wrong Bible verse and uh, it, it can be discouraging rather than encouraging. So you have to kind of spend time with people that are suffering and get to know what's really going on with them. Job's friends for a while did that. They, they visited him, they were quiet, and they encouraged him by their presence. And then they started talking and they became morons. He didn't want to have anything to do with them and God rebukes them at the end. And so don't be like that. Know their circumstances and then comfort their hearts. Now, obviously that involves sympathy and empathy and all this other stuff, but it's also a lot of times going to involve exhorting people to endure trouble by looking forward to heaven. Uh, sometimes that is what's going on and that's what's going to continue to go on. A lot of people get sick, God still heals, but he doesn't heal that often. And so people need to be ready for sickness and a lifetime sickness. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for healing. Pray for it until God tells you to stop. But each of you knows a lot of people, Christians, who got sick and never got any better. And so in some cases, you thought, not this person. This person is a saint. Why would this happen? Why isn't God answering their prayers? Well, God was answering their prayer for endurance, to walk with you through that situation. Uh, you want to know what we're going to teach on next Sunday? I think I'm going to talk about that a little bit because there is a lot of suffering in the world and in our congregation right now. But for right now, just remember that if you really want to comfort somebody, you can't give them platitudes. You're eventually going to have to tell them they may have to endure in Christ, but they can, in all things, do what Christ wants them to do because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so know their circumstances and comfort their hearts. Verse nine, Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you things which are happening here. Onesimus was previously the unsaved slave of Philemon. He escaped from Philemon after he had probably stolen some money uh, and he found himself in Rome. And somehow in that huge metropolis, he heard the gospel being preached by Paul the apostle. And he introduced himself to Paul and Paul found out that he knew his master Philemon. What a small world, right? God's providence. And then Paul told him, he had to go back to Philemon and make things right because that's what Christians do. And uh, man, you know, runaway slave who had stolen from your master, doesn't matter that they were a Christian. Uh, it, it could be pretty hairy. Now, Paul helped out by writing the letter to Philemon in which he exhorts his friend to receive Onesimus as a brother, essentially saying, hey, don't you see what happened here? Sure, he wronged you and he stole from you, but it was so that he would get to Rome and hear the gospel, and now he's saved and he returns to you as a brother. Great story, uh, the story of Philemon and Onesimus. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Aristarchus was a Jew who had been converted to Jesus during Paul's brief ministry in the city of Thessalonica. He began traveling with Paul and was one of two who were almost martyred by an angry mob of silversmiths in the city of Ephesus. He's uh, described as a fellow prisoner. We don't know if he was currently in prison or if he has uh, previously in prison with Paul. 
Too often the modern attitude concerning church is what can it do for me? In the New Testament, it could put you in prison. And so I like to say, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do in your church. I I made that up. (laughs) Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is the famous John Mark of the book of Acts who deserted Paul and Barnabas on the mission field. Paul and John Mark had reconciled. The apostle considered John Mark a trusted and faithful servant. Obviously, lessons here about being ready to forgive and about seeking reconciliation. Verse 11, and Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Jesus was a Hebrew name, obviously. Justice, a Greek name. At this point, Paul felt it important to identify these three guys as being of the circumcision. Now, if you were of the circumcision, that was a way of saying you were Jewish because that was the right that Abraham was given that set the Jews apart. But even if you were circumcised as a Gentile, you were still called the uncircumcision because you had nothing to do with the, uh, the Israelite religion. And, and so when he says these guys were of the circumcision, it just means they were Jews who had come to Christ. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Epaphras had been led to Christ by Paul in Ephesus and returned to establish the church in Colossae. Seems he also founded the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. These were neighboring communities there, and I think it's called the Lycus Valley. He labored fervently. That's an athletic metaphor. He approached prayer the way a professional athlete approached their sport with preparation and training and sincere effort. Subject of his praying was other believers, not so much himself. His objective for them was that they would submit to the will of God, find themselves being perfected as God worked in them to complete the work he had begun at their conversion. And he did all this with zeal. He would rather pray than anything else. One commentator uh, going through this section said, it might be better to pray for a person for half an hour than to counsel them for hours. Uh, Now, there's a place for counseling or what we call discipleship, obviously, in the Christian life. But I think that's a true statement. And right now, listening to it, you think, yeah, that makes sense. But how would it be if you called the church and said, hey, I I need counseling, and say, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray for you for half an hour. Have a nice day. That Pastor Gene, he's so stupid. He's so mean. I wanted counseling, and all he said is he'd pray for me. But, you know, I think you get the idea. You would be better off if I prayed for you half an hour than me talking to you. But anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. I'll be happy to talk to you. Maybe we should just pray together. That'd be a great counseling session, wouldn't it be? Somebody comes in and says, hey, I have this problem. Let's pray together for about 45 minutes. No, I want to talk about it. You need to talk to God about it, and let's do that together. So I'm giving you some alternatives here uh, to these things. We live in a culture, and again, we're not against discipleship, but we live in a culture where we've trained people to think that they need to have a series of one-hour sessions in order to be made right. And we bring that into the church, and we think, I need counseling, And so that must mean we meet for an hour over a period of time until I'm right. And I think these apostles would say, hey, we don't have time for that. Uh, Not that we're so busy, but because it'd be better if we just prayed for you. Let's pray together. Let's take this to the Lord and wait on the Lord and see what he might have to say. So maybe we need to revolutionize this whole area of counseling. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Doctors may not have been as revered in first century Rome as they are today, 
Luke was undoubtedly the slave of Theophilus for whom he was commissioned to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He was on loan to the Apostle Paul and traveling with him. Whether revered or not, Luke reminds us that no matter your career, you are first and foremost committed to serving the church. Your career belongs to Jesus. Demas is interesting, mentioned three times in the Bible, and commentators point out that there is a digression in each mention. First, he is called Demas, my fellow laborer, and is linked with three godly men, Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke. Next, he is simply called Demas uh, with no word of identification or commendation. And finally, in the Bible, in 2 Timothy, it's said of him, he had forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so he's an example of the backslidden believer and uh, obviously, we want to um, want to be careful that you don't backslide, obviously, right? Nobody wants to uh, wake up one day and be farther away from the Lord than you once were. And so Demas, on fire, working as a laborer, missionary, and yet he ended up uh, loving this present world. And so all of us need to check our spirit. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. The church over in Laodicea met in the home of Nymphus. Now, the church, you remember, initially met daily in the temple at Jerusalem and at private homes. The day of Pentecost, they began to meet in the temple and then in private homes. As Christianity spread, the gospel was preached in synagogue meetings and in private homes. If a building was suitable and available, it was rented and utilized. You see that in Acts chapter 19, for example. Historically, about the third century, when Christianity ceased being officially persecuted by the government, the church started meeting more conveniently in available buildings. I'm telling you this because today there's a home church movement that is antagonistic to buildings and property. Uh, you may not have encountered this, but sooner or later you'll find a friend of yours or a Christian who's part of the home church movement. They have all kinds of rules about how big the home church can get before it needs to split off and be another home church. And uh, they're against, as I said, owning any kind of property. They see it as a waste and all that. Now, personally, I don't care where the church meets, whether it's in homes, in the park, uh, here in our building, those kinds of things. It only starts to bother me when people say you're wrong for where you're meet and we're right because now you're uh, into total legalism. And so don't be drawn away by those kinds of things. The early church didn't only meet in homes. They met in the temple, they met in homes, they met in buildings. Uh, I'm sure that they met anywhere they could where they could spread the gospel and that's what we're gonna do until uh, such time as we have, maybe have to go underground and meet only in homes privately. The epistle from Laodicea, most likely the letter we call Ephesians, it was meant to be read in all the churches, and it just happened to be at Laodicea at the time. What we learn here is that all the letters to any of the churches have things for every assembly of God's people. Now, you have to pay attention. Sometimes the writer is addressing a certain subgroup, like dispersed Jews, but all of the Bible is for all of us. Just because Paul wrote to Ephesus doesn't mean his epistle isn't for Hanford. Uh, the Spirit can draw things out as He always does. Read means read aloud, and this is another clue that we're talking about the church in its gatherings. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Archippus was most likely Philemon's son. He would be the current pastor of the church at Colossae. And then in verse 18, it closes, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, 
Remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. It's believed by scholars that Paul dictated his letters to a secretary called an amnesis. He would usually sign, or always rather, sign them to verify authenticity. Remember my chains. I see Paul reminding them of the joy of his sacrifice and his suffering for the sake of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, remember my chains and pray for me as I asked for an opening to share the gospel with my guards and with uh, the government officials and, and everybody in this situation. He wasn't, um, he wasn't you know, asking them to be sympathetic for him. He was encouraging them in their own ministry. He was suffering as a prisoner of Jesus. Grace be with you is more than a quick end to the letter. You remember in this letter, he talked about legalistic false teachers who were trying to get them away from the grace of God into legalism. And so Paul is saying, hey, stick with grace. That which you began with, continue with. You're not gonna be perfected in the flesh. You need to continue in the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. And then the pastor would say amen, ending the sermon that day in Colossae. What we studied for 10 weeks uh, would be read to the uh, church and they had to pay attention as uh, they didn't have multiple copies. They couldn't pull it up on their tablets, uh, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, see all the stuff here. Imagine being able to just hear this letter one time. It would be mind-blowing. But the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, would bring it to their hearts. Uh, so let me just end with a boiler room quote from Spurgeon, getting back to that idea that prayer is the engine, corporate prayer especially is the engine that motivates us and, and uh, uh, is our source of power. Spurgeon said this, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. <clears throat> Let's pray.